All right, you guys in Romans chapter 11? All right, so today what we're going to do is, is our, our slide here in Romans 11 says to be grafted into Jesus. And so this, is, this concept is, is, is taught, but is a little secondary in Romans chapter 11. One of the things that happens when you go to Israel, as we just got back, the symbol for the, the messianic side of the house. So when you're in Israel, as you guys know, um, Israel is very, as a country, to set it in perspective, Israel is very secular. Which means that, you know, a lot of the kids, the teenage kids, they're doing things that, that, that just kids are doing and, and very secular. They have clubs and bars and, and, and nightlife and, and Tel Aviv and all over Israel. For the most part, you know, much of the, the indigenous, the Jewish population are just, they wouldn't consider them religious people. They're just, just secular. You have a huge faction, section, obviously, of religious people in, in Israel. You have the Jews who don't believe in Jesus. They only believe in the Old Testament. Among the Jews, you have tons of different sects. The biggest two being the Orthodox Jews and the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And then you have you know Christians and um, you have Muslims and you have every other kind of faction, especially in Jerusalem, in the area around the Temple Mount. Every different faction of of religion somehow, somewhere, has a presence in the Holy Land. But one of the things and one of the symbols of, of Messianic Jews or, or of Christians or, or born-again Christians as, as we are is a symbol in Israel that represents the fact that we were grafted in. And this is what it is here. And you'll see this all over. I have one here. This is a prayer shawl. Now, as Christians, we're not in the habit of, of putting on a prayer shawl every time we, we begin to pray. But for the Jews... Um, they don't pray without, without their heads covered and without a prayer shawl. So whenever you see a Jew praying, they always have one of these covering their heads. And so on ours, in this particular one, it has this same symbol, the fish and star of David and the menorah. So when I was in Israel, where's Lydia? Oh, she had to step out the baby. I bought her a necklace with this symbol on it. And I was in the jewelry store. And the jeweler, who was a, a, not a Messianic Jew, he, who, he took some time and explained this symbol because we had seen it and you'll see it all over Israel. And he said that the menorah, God told Aaron to build a menorah and put it in the temple. And so the original symbol is, is the menorah and, and, and this bottom triangle here in, the, in this symbol. And this bottom triangle is, is, is a picture, is a representative of the temple. And so God told Aaron to build the menorah and put it in the temple. And so you'll have this symbol all over Israel, just the triangle with the menorah. Well, then when the early church started and, and we were grafted in, one of the symbols that the early church uses, they took a Christian fish and they combined it with this symbol. And, and you, so the tail of the Christian of the fish with the tail kind of coincidentally makes up the Star of David. So you have the, the, the Israel represented the Star of David and the, and the church that were grafted in. So you'll see that, that symbol. So Romans chapter... 11 talks about it. That, that particular symbol was found um, on some pottery shards and was used. And it was found about 30 years ago. They found it and it, was, it dated back to the time of the early church. And it would have been a symbol from here, from Romans chapter 11 that was used. So let's take a look at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, that, that particular topic is kind of secondary to the nature of Romans 11. If you know anything about um, the Bible or Christianity, one of the things you, you've probably gathered by now is that the, the Swiss Alps, the peaks of, of, of really the New Testament and the Bible can be found right here in this section of Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. It's, it's like the, it's, 
it's the Mount Everest of scriptures. It says in Romans chapter 8 that there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That you live your life under zero condemnation as a Christian. For those who love God and are called according to his purposes. It says in Romans chapter 8, all things. Somebody say all things. Does that mean some things? Does that mean a few things? All means what? All. It says all things work out for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to His purposes. That God works all things together for your good. That's a promise we all love, right? We all have that one on the fridge. We have it in our Bibles. We have it highlighted. God works all things together for good. And it's an amazing promise of God and a perspective for us as Christians that God works all things together for our good. And, and then you have in Romans ten nine a scripture we should all know. Trust and believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. Trust and believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. The simplicity of the gospel of grace. That it's about trusting and believing on Jesus and nothing else and you shall be saved. It only takes a Christian church to complicate that verse. It's not complicated. It's pretty simple. Trust and believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. We have in Romans, in this section, we have that that no matter where you go and what you do in your life, you cannot separate yourself from the love of God. It says that neither principalities or powers, height, nor depth, nor created things, nor things high, nor things below, nothing shall be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so this amazing love of God that you, no matter what you do, you can't separate yourself from. And as Paul is getting into this, and Paul here in the book of Romans is speaking to the, anybody know? In the book of Romans, he's speaking to the Romans, and he's speaking to a Gentile audience. And and, and there's this kind of theme that in, in, in Romans chapter 11, and again, Pastor Jackie and Buell, he, he taught through Romans, and you really could do this. It's done all over the place. And he spent like two and a half years just in the book of Romans. I mean, that's like two months for every chapter. It, it, it's a long time, you know, but you, you really could. You, you could go through in the section that I read, or in the different, you know, pastors that I listen to and stuff that I do prepare, to prepare. Pr- pretty much everybody did like three sermons just on, 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 on Hebrews cha- or Romans chapter 11. Because it's so deep and there's so much to it. So just in one Sunday to take this little pull out of Romans chapter 11, we're just going to scratch the surface. But I think in order to do it, you know, the, the, the context, again, in Romans chapter 8, you see Israel's past. And then in Romans chapter 9, you see the, the, um, the sovereignty of God that's, that's mentioned. And in chapter 10, you see their present. So God, their past, the, the sovereignty of God. And, and Romans chapter 10, the, the free will of man... Uh, combined with this sovereignty of God, that yes, God is sovereign and, and, and there's predestination and free will, but man has free will. And then we get to 11 and it's about Israel's future. And, and the natural question that comes among the Gentiles is if God is a God of, the, of Israel, if he's a God of the Hebrews, and what, what has he done? Is he able to preserve their future? Is he able to keep the promises of God to the Jews? And he's making all these promises to me. But is he able to keep the promises he's already made to the Jews? And Paul kind of answers that question in Romans chapter 11. It says, verse number one, it says, I say then that God has not, or sorry, I say then God cast away his people? Question mark. Certainly not. I'm going to ask you guys a question. The answer is going to be certainly not. Has God cast away his people? 
Certainly not. And he's not talking about his people not being the church or you and I in this context. He's talking about his people being Israel and the nation of Israel. And and so has God cast away the nation of Israel? No. Now, why would somebody ask that question? Has God cast away Israel? Because at this point, Messiah has come. Jesus has come, right? Did Israel receive Jesus as their Messiah? No, in large part, the, the religious Jews in Israel, they did what? They killed Jesus to the point where, where Jews were known or Jews would carry a hashtag, Christ killers. And, and to this day, it's a term you'll hear from time to time. Oh, the Jews are Christ killers or they're Jesus killers. And, and, and so they, they rejected. And you guys remember Jesus, as he entered into Jerusalem, um, riding on a donkey in the triumphal entry. Well, shortest verse in the Bible says what? Jesus wept. And what did he weep for? He wept for Lazarus. But in this context, he wasn't weeping for Lazarus. Another place where Jesus wept in the New Testament. And this time as he entered into Jerusalem, triumphantly, on a donkey, coming in peace, he wept over the city because they missed him. Because he looked back and he saw the city and in his mind's eye, he saw Titus Vespasian 40 years later that would come through and completely destroy the city of Jerusalem, destroy the temple and disperse the Jews all over the world. He saw the potential that Israel had as a nation to be a light to the whole world and receive God's blessing had they received him as their Messiah. And yet they missed it. And they missed Jesus nationally as their Messiah and they rejected him and they crucified him. Zechariah, in the book of Zechariah, in chapters 11 and 12, you got to go and read it this week. In there, there's this scene in the future where, where Jesus comes and he's ministering and he's there in the house of Israel and he's just protected Jerusalem and Israel. And, and the Jews are going to say to him, where did you get those, those wounds in your hands? And Jesus is going to say, these wounds I received in the hand, at the hands of my friends, in the house of my friends. And understand that, that Jesus received those wounds in Israel and, and, and at the, the house of his friends. And so, yes, we have this, this picture and this reality that, that Jesus was crucified, was killed, was rejected by the Jews. So, so how does this affect Israel today and the promises? And, and again, this was the natural question in Romans chapter 11 that is being asked. And it goes on in verse 2 and it says, God has not cast away. And Paul's emphatic. He already told you, certainly not. God forbid. And then he says in verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine respond and say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So here, Paul reminds them that even if Elijah is praying against you, you're going to be okay. And here we have a a pastor figure, a prophet, Elijah, who's um, one of the greatest in in the Bible, right? And, And the most amazing miracles wrought through this man's life. And, and Elijah has this church, and he's, he's upset with Israel, and he starts praying against them. God, you know, don't bless them anymore. God, get, you know, and he's mad, and they're, they're in rebellion, and so he's praying against them. If you guys go to a church, and the pastor starts, like, praying against you, find a different church, all right? 
And Elijah and his church, he's praying against them. And Paul says, look, even if Elijah is the one who's praying against you, you're all right. Because the Bible says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? And it doesn't matter when God's on your side. It doesn't matter who's praying against you. It doesn't matter what's coming against you. You're going to be all right. And then as, as he recounts Elijah praying against the people, and Elijah was complaining and saying, I'm the only one that's left. And there is nobody left in the, in the nation of Israel. And what does God say in verse, in verse number three or four? How does, how does God respond? What does the divine respond in verse four? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In verse five, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Even so to this time, there's a remnant. I want to take a rabbit trail really quickly. And let's talk about this remnant that, that Paul addresses here in Romans chapter 11. That, that God deals with, and Paul says, this remnant, this reserved 7,000, it's present, not that same 7,000, but the same idea that God always has a remnant. So Elijah is there, and you guys know the story, amazing story, one of my favorite stories out of, out of um, the book of Kings, you can read it. And Elijah goes and he challenges, and at his, at his time, there was this, this pagan worship and this idol worship among the, the nations that surrounded Israel. And through Israel's, Israel's history, they, they were adopting the, the worship of the pagans around them. And one of them was the worship of Baal and, and, and all the crazy practices that went on with the worship of Baal. The queen at the time, her name was Jezebel. And she was the most, one of the most wicked women we have in the Bible. By the way, don't name your daughters Jezebel, okay? She wasn't nice. It's not a good Bible name, okay? Jezebel was one of the most wicked women in all the Bible. In all history. And Jezebel was this nasty woman, biblically, who turned God's people and turned their heart away from God after the worship of Baal. And so Elijah there, he challenges all of her prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, to a duel on Mount Carmel. You can go there today on Mount Carmel and see the place where it actually went down. And so 450 to 1 are the odds. God loves those odds. He's the one, always usually 450. And if God's in the fight, he's like, it ain't even fun. God's not even showing up until the odds are 450 to 1 against him. That's why when Gideon, you do the number, do the math on Gideon. Gideon's 300 versus 135,000, exactly 450 to 1. Over and over again, you see these odds. And so Elijah shows up and he says, let's have a duel. And he told the people. And the people were going back and forth and they knew the Lord and they knew Yahweh and they, they served him, but yet they were serving the gods of Baal as well. And Elijah said, listen, I don't care. He said, if if the Lord is God, then doesn't it make sense? Common sense says, if the Lord is God, then let's just serve him. But if Baal is God, he said, then serve him. But just stop going back and forth. Choose this day. It says, choose this day who you will serve. Very close to what Joshua told us. The same common sense sentiment. If the Lord is God, then serve him. If these other things are your God, then serve them. But stop vacillating back and forth between the two. So Elijah calls the prophets of Baal and they have this duel and they say, let's build an altar with wood. And the God who answers by fire, let him be the true God and the real God. And so the prophets of Baal, 450, they go first and they build this altar of wood and they start praying and crying out to Baal and saying, oh, Baal, would you answer by fire and show that you're God? And nothing happens. And then Elijah starts bagging on him, as you guys know the story. And he's like, hey, maybe your God is sleeping. Call louder. You'll wake him up. Maybe he missed his alarm. Maybe he's in the bathroom doing number two and he can't hear you. He says he's relieving himself. 
And, and maybe he's busy. Maybe he went on a vacation. And as the, as the, as the time went on, the prophets of Baal, they began to wail and cry louder. And then all of these pagan practices started coming out that we see even today. They began to cut themselves, as was their custom. And they were using their blood and their cutting and all of their, their things that they would try to do to, to summon their God. And then, the, of course, he didn't answer by fire. And then it became Elijah's turn. And Elijah built an altar of wood. And, and, and just to make it good, he poured water all over it. And he had three pitchers of water. And they poured it up and the water went all around it. They built a trench around the altar. And the water filled that, covered the wood. And, and, and Elijah kept saying, no, more water, more water. Just to be sure, this, this wood was soaking wet. And the trench they built around it was full of water. You guys ever tried to light wet wood on fire? It don't happen. It's impossible. The only way you light wet wood on fire is you dry it first and it's not wet anymore. Then it'll burn. It's the only way. And so, so Elijah prays a simple prayer and, and God answers by fire. The Bible says that the fire licked up all of the water, consumed the altar and it lit on fire and, and thereby God proving the true God. And then Elijah then could look to the people and say, you see, the Lord is God. Serve him only and stop serving these false prophets of Baal. And then he took the 450 prophets of Baal and he marched them down the mountain and murdered or killed. I guess he didn't murder. He killed 450 of them. And then Jezebel, she got word of what Elijah did. And she said, oh, well, if I don't have his head by this time tomorrow. And she was mad. He just got through 40, fighting for or you know, challenging and, and having victory in the Lord over 450 prophets of Baal. And this one angry woman is mad at him. And the dude like Forrest Gump gets off his porch and just starts running and doesn't stop. And he's so afraid of, of Jezebel, this one woman, that, that he runs and runs and runs. He runs all the way to the south of Israel. Finally stops. And he's so, he's so physically drained that God sends an angel to meet him. And it says that the angel baked him a cake to give him energy. Now, obviously, that was angel food cake, right? <laughs> baked him a cake. To, these cheesy jokes in church. I'm sorry. It's bad. But that's what it says. The angel baked him a cake and, and gave him sustenance or energy. And then when he was in his right mind and, and he recovered a little bit, God showed up and said, okay, Elijah, let's have a conversation. What are you doing? Why are you running? Did you not forget the victory that you, that you just had like minutes ago? And how I showed up and answered by fire and miraculously did this amazing thing in your life and your ministry among the people of Israel? And now you're running and you're afraid of this woman? And Elijah's whining. He's crying, I'm the only one left. There's nobody else left. I'm the only one that serves you. So I ran because I'm all by myself. And God says, Elijah, you're not the only one left. I have 7,000. I have a remnant of 7,000 that have never bowed a knee to Baal. And that remnant, God has always kept a remnant. And this story is an illustration and Paul brings it to New Testament life and says to this day, the day that he would have wrote this, and to this day, I'm telling you, to this day today, God has always had a remnant. It's one of the things that, that really flies in the face of, of, of newer churches that started because everything else was in apostasy. It's not biblical. The Bible, God says, I've always had a remnant. And sometimes a minority, but I've always had a remnant. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so the, the, the gates of hell have never prevailed against Jesus's church. And there's never been the need for a redo. 
Because it's never happened. And there's this remnant. And so, so Paul, in talking to the Gentiles and encouraging them that God is not for God Israel, recounts this story and Elijah and says that even if Elijah is praying against you, that, that God is with you, you're going to be all right. And verse 6 says, And if by grace, then, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works is no longer work. So basically, really quickly, we've already studied Galatians. Paul just makes another very quick statement that, that summarizes all the book of Galatians where he elaborates that we do not live with the works doctrine. It's not by works. You're not going to work your way into heaven. You're not going to work your way into God's grace. You know what the reality is about life? Me included. We, we have this idea that God is... Um, God loves us because... Because of who, because of, of, of we can please him. And he loves us more when we please him. And he, he loves us less when we're making mistakes. But unfortunately, or fortunately, you, you can't add or take away to it. God loves you so much, he can't love you any less. It's impossible for him to love you any more. He loves you so much, he couldn't love you more if he tried. And it's not based on, on what you do. The Bible says that, that God loves you in spite of you. It says that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. And God blesses you not because you're awesome, but because He's awesome. And because He wants to. And He blesses you in spite of you. You know, some of the times in my life when I've received the greatest blessings from the Lord are times when I deserved Him the least. And He did it that way, I think, intentionally, just to remind me that you don't earn this stuff, man. I'm doing this stuff for you because I love you, because I want to do it for you. Turn with me real quick to Deuteronomy. And God shares in Deuteronomy why... He, he loves the nation of Israel and why He's chosen the nation of Israel. It says in Deuteronomy, are you guys there? Chapter 7, verse number 6. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for Himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. So this is, the title here is a chosen people. Now again, Israel is God's chosen people. It's a topic and a subject that I, that I talk about, that I'm passionate about, that I think we, get, we do well here in our church. I hope we do. But again, I, I want to just tell you that we're, we're on the side of Israel. I make no bones about it. We're pro-Israel. We're pro-Jewish. We're, we stand on and with and on the side of Israel. And it's biblical. And there's a reason for it. And, and, and it's a call of us as the church to stand and to be with Israel. And, he, and here God's reminded that, that, that they are a chosen people. That there are people, like he says in the Bible, that they're an, uh, the apple of God's eye. To Abraham, as you guys know, in Genesis... God says to the nation, to those that bless you, I will bless you. And to those that curse you, I will curse you. You want to be on the side of blessing or cursing? Not a hard question. Blessing or cursing? Blessing. Then, then bless Israel because that's what the Word of God says. It's a national promise. It's an individual promise. It's a church promise. It's a promise from Genesis chapter 12 that's valid for us today. And you can watch and you can study and you can see it through history that those that bless Israel, God will bless. And those that curse Israel, they will be cursed. And Israel as a nation has been attacked since 
Adam and Eve in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, God, Gethsemane, that would be Eden, since the Garden of Eden, that, that all the way through Abraham, the first Hebrew, all the way through to today, this people that we see here in, 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 Hebrew, or in Deuteronomy 6 has been attacked by Satan. Let, let's just look really quick. Deuteronomy 7, 6. Let's start over. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Now, that doesn't offend me or bother me. It is what it is. It says that God has chosen them above all the other peoples on the earth. So if you're Irish and you got Irish pride or you're Cajun like me and we got Cajun pride or whatever it is, God says, I've chosen a people to be my people, chosen above all the other people on the earth. And the reality is God was going to send His Son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, in the flesh, to to come. And He needed a people. He needed a a place to send His Son. And He chose Israel. And it wouldn't have mattered who He chose or where He chose. Jesus could have been a Mexican or Japanese or Irish. or He just needed a place to send His Son. And this is the place that that God chose. And, And because of that, though, and because of the fact that Jesus is a Jew and was a Jew and was born in, in Israel to a Jewish family, there's, there's been the hatred of the Jews by Satan from the beginning of human history. And, and, and again, one of, the, one of the doctrines that's come up in the church, and it came up that, that the church has replaced Israel, that God is mad at Israel, they killed Jesus, they rejected him all the way since, the, since Egypt, and they just have been a stiff-necked and a stubborn people. And God's done with them. And so every time you see a promise to the nation of Israel in the Bible, that it is now applies to the church or the bride of Christ. And it's called replacement theology. Replacement theology is demonic. We, have, we, we, we reject it thoroughly. And, 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 but the church, they swayed. And again, if, if you live in 1500, 1600, 1700, 1800, that's not that long ago, 1850, 1900, 120 years ago, 1917, 1916, exactly 100 years ago, you live in a world that doesn't have an Israel. It doesn't have a Jerusalem. The Jews are scattered all around the world. You may know of a Jew, you may not. And in that, and living in that world, the church and sections of the church went to this theology or this doctrine that God was done and replaced the Jew. They didn't read Romans, I guess, because they had it in the Word had they studied the Word. And one of the reformers finally came along and said, if God can break his promise to Israel, then the promise to us is invalid for today. And God can also break his promise to us. And then Romans chapter 11, that's what Paul is talking about. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, it says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were, in, you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all the people. But because, verse 8, look at verse 8 with me, Deuteronomy 7, but because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. I love that. God just says, hey, I didn't choose you because you were awesome. I didn't choose you because you were cooler than the other cats down the street. I chose you because I love you. Same reason why God chooses you and chooses me. He chose you because he loves you. And the Bible says that I we love Jesus, but we love him because he loved us first. 
And God didn't choose them. God didn't look down and find, oh man, that, that, those people right there, that's a big group of people. They're talented. They're the largest group. They're powerful. I, I'm going to choose them and, and I'm going to bring my son through them and my story, I'm going to tell my story through them. He says, no, I didn't look down and, and find the most biggest group of people, powerful people. I saw you and you were small and you were weak. And I chose you because I love you. But he chose them. Today, Queen Victoria, she asked one time, she said, just give me one proof, one, one solid foundation, something that the Bible is true and that God is real. And, and, and I love the answer that she received. True story. It said the number one reason that the Bible is true and that God is real, the Jew. That's the number one reason that the Bible is true and that, that we know that it's there. Now, we, we have to understand that everything moving forward, whenever we talk about the tribulation, the seven-year period, whenever we talk about a one-world government, a one-world economy, um, Jesus coming back on a white horse, we talk about the battle of Armageddon, we talk about the mark of the beast, the Antichrist, all that study, I hope you understand, it takes place in a geographical location called Israel, called Jerusalem. There's a people called the Jew. And anything that we believe as Christian people sitting here today that I've been teaching you guys that's yet future is not possible without the Jew and without Israel. If we didn't have Israel and we don't have the Jew, then we could stop studying this book. We could all go home. We could pick a different book to study, pick a different religion, because this one is not true because all the prophecies depend on the fact that there's going to be a Jewish people and a Jewish homeland and a Jewish nation yet future. I want to tell you something about that. Satan understands that. Satan has known that. He's known that since Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell in the garden and God said that Jesus was going to bruise his heel by crushing your skull is what it says in Genesis 3. That the, the, the heel of Jesus was going to smash your face and your head in Satan and bruise your head or bruise his heel on your head, crushing your skull. So that's the threat. Now, I think Satan has taken it seriously over the years. And he knows that Jesus was going to come through the line of David and through the Jewish people. And through this line that started way back at Adam and went through Abraham and all the way through. And so from the beginning of human history all the way through, Satan has had this plan that if he can destroy Israel, he can destroy the Jewish people, he can annihilate them. That he can win. And God can't crush his head anymore. God can't fulfill what the Bible says without him. And that's why when we say all of anti-Semitism, all the attack on Jews and on Israel over the years, it's anti-Semitic, it's satanic, it's evil in nature, it's a satanic plan to try to destroy and defeat God of Satan. Why did Hitler pick the Jews? Was it genocide what he did to the Jews? It's genocide if he kills women and children and men. His, his plan was to, Satan's plan through Hitler was to eradicate the Jew off the face of the planet. Had Hitler won the war, he very possibly could have completed his plan that he started. He got a pretty good jump when he killed six million Jews in the Holocaust. And had he had world control and world dominance, he would have got the rest of them. And Satan's plan would have been complete. But again, a satanic plan. And the reason why he chose the Jews was Satan's plan to, to, to make the Bible not true and to win. And he can't win. You know, if you look at, at, Jew, at Israel's history, 
it, it, it's the same all the way through, right? It's just been one attack after another that they've survived. The fact that they're here today and the fact that they have a homeland, a culture, a language, uh, 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 everything that they have, their history, they even know where they're from. They have their lineages all intact. Their paperwork's intact. That's proof that, that they're God's people and God's preserved them and kept them. Just take a quick look at their history. You know, in, 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 in the history of the world, there's been no group that's been more blessed than the Jew. And, and, and if you ask a Jew today and you tell them, oh my gosh, you're, you're God's chosen people. You're the apple of God's eye. They say, really, what's that done for us? Done nothing for us. You, you can have it. You can be God's chosen people. We don't want it. What's it done for us? And, and, and really, they, they miss the, the blessing that's been theirs all, all the way through. And really, the, the blessing of, of the Jews throughout human history, it's been amazing, even to this day. Do you realize to this day that Israel is the number one um, exporter of, of technology, agriculture, um, developer, um, developer in these areas? They, they have this commercial. Have you guys ever seen it? But there's this kind of idea, or there's this push out there to boycott Israel. So these two guys... In joking, but it's it's pretty done really well. They say you want to boycott Israel, okay? Let's help you out because we, you know, this is a good idea. Let's let's boycott Israel. So first, take out your cell phone because all the technology and the information that's in your cell phone it all comes from Israel. So just get rid of your cell phone, and then they start going through all the things in your house and in your life that were either developed or 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 made or invented in Israel. And by the time it's done, you're like left in your underwear, and you're going like, maybe I don't want to boycott Israel. But, but they have been so blessed, so ingenious. And, and God has blessed them. And, and, and the Nobel Peace Prizes, they have more Nobel Peace Prizes than any other people group. More, more uh, I met a kid in the airport when I was in Israel, coming back from Israel. And he was on his way to Kansas to work with a company in Kansas for some water-saving technology that's being developed in Israel that a farm in Kansas is trying to purchase. And the company he works from is developing this technology that farm will help farms in Kansas and help farms around the world. And he was going to share this technology with them. And so they've been so blessed. They've also never been a people group that's been more persecuted. By the Babylonians, we know, we know that Nebuchadnezzar and... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel were carried into captivity by the Babylonians. The Medes, the Persians, the Greeks have all conquered Israel. They've had an ancient enemy from, from the beginning, the Philistines, who are present today under another name, Palestine. There was a, there was a delegation, and there was a, a Hebrew, an Israeli guy, and they were talking about who belonged in the land and who was there first between the Palestinians and the Jews. And so the, the, the Hebrew guy, the Israeli guy, went first. And he said, I want to start before I get into my presentation. I want to tell you a story about Moses. He said, you know, when Moses came and he, he, he hit the rock and water came out. Moses was there and he took all his clothes off and the water was coming off and he wanted to take a shower and a bath. And so he got in the water and was taking all of his bath. And when he got done, he went back to where he had took all his clothes off and his things. And he said they were all missing. He said a Palestinian came and stole all of his things. And the Palestinian delegate that was there, he got really mad and irate and red-faced. He's like, what are you talking about? It wasn't a Palestinian. We weren't even there. <laughs> so he went and sat down. He said, okay, I proved my point. 
But they've had the ancient enemy that's there today, and all Palestine is is, is Jordanians and Egyptians who, who, who have tried to settle in the land, and they're, they're, there's plenty of place for them to go and plenty of, of, of countries. Israel is a postage stamp on a football field compared to the land that's Israel's with the rest of the Arab world that's around them, and there's plenty of place they could go. Matter of fact, in, in, in 67... They came and they, they, when all these countries attacked Israel, they told the Palestinians, hey, you guys flee and get out because we're going to completely annihilate this place. And that was their plan. And they attacked it on every side. And they would have been successful. And they said, then when it's done, you can have everything. We're going to kill them all. You can have all their stuff. You can just go back in. But get out so you guys are safe while we come in and we're going to destroy everything. And so, so many of them left. Then it didn't go the way they planned. And they, they, they left on their own when they came back. And Israel won the war. We guys know we're back to the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks. The solutions under Antiochus Epiphanes came in and he he sieged Jerusalem. Sieged Jerusalem and he went into the temple and he set up an altar to a pig and defiled the temple in in idol worship in in a um, precursor to the abomination of desolation. We know that in 70 AD, as um, as Jesus predicted, Titus Vespasian came through and destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem as a city has been through 36 different wars fought on Jerusalem soil. Jerusalem has been sacked and, and, and completely destroyed to ashes 17 times in history. Rebuilt eight times. Titus Vespasian, you guys know there was the group of the, the zealots that were there. One of Jesus' disciples that he called was a zealot. I went and saw that movie, uh, Ben-Hur, on Friday. Anyone see it yet? Just me? Some of you guys? I thought it was pretty cool. You know, I, I went to it really not knowing it was a Christian movie. I asked somebody later, like, was that a Christian movie? Because at the end of it, it was, I just thought it was a secular movie set in that time. And uh, Morgan Freeman was in it. But it, it had a really cool Christian theme. And, and, and it, was, it was really good. And in there, there's this faction of zealots that are fighting the Romans. And they hate the Roman occupation of Israel. And, and they're, they're, they're fighting them. And, and so... Kind of has a cool twist in the end. You know, the, the first part, I'm like, that's stupid. Let's go. This movie's dumb. I don't like this. Let's get out of here. But I stuck around and it got good. It got better. It was actually a really good movie. Had a great twist in the end. But that group, the Zealots, historically, really in, in human history, Jesus died, as we know, around 32, 33. Then, then the, the Pentecost spirit was given. And Jesus said that in AD 70, Titus Vespasian, that not one, t- one stone of the temple would be left. In 66, this group of zealots had raised up and caused a revolt and, and got rid of and kicked out and controlled an area there. The Romans responded by sending one of their generals by the name of Titus Vespasian to the area to, to, to siege and sack and retake Jerusalem. They surrounded the city in what was a three-year siege from 67 to 70 where they began to starve out the people that were inside. The people inside began to eat dead bodies and eat dung to survive. And the stories of those that were still there. And finally, Titus Vespasian seized Jerusalem in AD 70, destroyed the temple, and 1.3 million Jews were dispersed all around the world. To 1948, from that time to 1948, there was no Israel. There was no homeland. They were all over the world. We know that in Constantine, later... um, 50 years later, around that time in the first century, second century, Constantine, he outlawed Judaism. Then, then we know 633 with the rise of Islam in northern Africa and Arabia. 
Islam is the number one enemy of, of the Israel. And they, they killed many Jews and attacked the Jews during that time. In the 11th century, when we had the crusaders with the Christian cross under the guise of Christianity or Christ, the crusaders came through. And the crusaders had a saying, to kill a Jew is to save a life, is to save a soul, to save your own soul. And nothing to do with the name of Christ. And the crusaders put that black eye on Christianity forever and had nothing to do with God. And then in 1350, the Black Plague, the bubonic plague in, of Europe, was blamed on the Jews. They said it was the Jews. You know why they, they blamed it on the Jews? Because no Jews were coming down with it. None of the Jews were, were catching it or getting sick. Possibly because they were, they were um, of their kosher laws and the, their, their dietary laws and things that God had laid out for them. That because they ate kosher, they, they missed it. Possibly because they were tight-knit, they stayed together. They missed it, but they missed the Black Plague and it was blamed on them. And as a result, tons of persecution in Europe in, in the 14th century. And then as we know, in 1492... Columbus did what? Sailed the ocean blue. And one of the things we miss about old 1492 was that in 1492, Spain dispersed all of the Jews that were living in Spain. Huge population of of Jewish people all over Europe, and they kicked them out. 800,000 Jews were put on boats and just sent out into the ocean to to fend for themselves. And many of them died from, from exposure and just from being out there when they kicked them out. And again, you can look at Spain. You can follow Spain's history and see how, how God's blessing and his hand upon Spain left at that time. But Columbus, who some believe was a Jew himself, or part Jewish at least, left at that time and discovered America. And eventually America would become a place that God would, would house and would refuge and would, would a place where his people could go until you know, it was time to call him home. And then as we know, we switched the numbers, 1492, 1942, We have the Holocaust, where Hitler gathers and kills and is able to kill six million Jews. And so we have um, today, 1967, 1948, under world sentiment, Israel becomes a nation. The United States is the first one to sign off to bring them back as a nation. 1967, we have all, all, 1948, as soon as they became a nation, all of the Arab countries around them immediately from all sides attacked them. God miraculously preserved them in 1948. Then in 1967, the same thing happened. Another war armed with Russian military weapons came through. And in six days, God preserved and and kept Israel in the Six-Day War. And at that time, in 1967, they regained Jerusalem for the first time. They had the Dome of the Rock. They, They talked about destroying it. It was under their control. It was in their power. And they said, no, let's let's give it back to them. And maybe it'll it'll make peace. Did it make peace? didn't make peace. Why? Because the, the nations that surround Israel, they don't want peace. They're hell-bent. They're demon-influenced and Satan-empowered and, and, and everything else because they want to destroy and annihilate the Jews. You know, when, when dealing with this Arab enemy that we have today, just so we understand, we, we have a different enemy. You know, we had before. What was it like when we were growing up, when I was growing up? In the 80s and 90s, we had a war. What did we call it? A cold war. And it was with Who? The Russians. You know what was different with the Cold War? The Cold War and the Russians, we were dealing with a, with a communist ideology that was, that was atheistic in nature. And so they believed that, that, that there was no God and no afterlife. And this life is what we had, so let's make it the best. You know how the Cold War ended? President Reagan and Gorbachev sat across the table from each other. 
And we had this pact, and it was like, I forget what it's called, it's mutual destruction. It's basically the idea, you push the button, you destroy all the United States, we're going to push the button, we're going to destroy all of Russia in a nuclear war. And, and both hands are on the button during the Cold War the whole time. And everybody lives under this, are, is, are we going to go into a nuclear war? Well, it finally ended when Gorbachev and Reagan sat down. And Reagan said to Gorbachev, he said, you know, if you push the button and I push the button. And Reagan began to name his kids and his wife. And he said, your wife, what's going to happen to her? And your daughters, where will they grow up and what will they do? And because Gorbachev's worldview was atheistic and that it made sense to him that if we destroy all of this, there's nothing to look forward to, that, that, that they mutually ended the Cold War. The enemy that we have today in the Arab world, it's a different enemy. Ahmadinejad, he's the former president of Iran. He's the one that very publicly at the UN and many different times has publicly said that, that his life, his mission is to kill the great Satan, which is the United States, and the little Satan, which is Israel. That he's going to wipe Israel off the face of the planet. And, and all of the Arab worlds and all of the Arab countries that surround Israel to this day are hell-bent on, on destroying and wiping Israel out. But the enemy's different because they want destruction. They want nuclear war. Because they're not atheistic. And in, in their, their belief that they want to bring in their Mahdi and their, their, the, this, this um, Messiah that they're waiting for and they think they have to destroy Israel in order to do it. Go back to Romans with me and we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up. In Romans chapter 11, verse 11, it says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So yes, Israel has fallen. They rejected their Messiah. But God is using and God is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles as a way to provoke them to jealousy. And it's a, it's a way that God uses as, as the nation of Israel would see the other nations, would see the Christian church, would see you and I, that, that it would provoke them to jealousy and for now, in verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch that I am apostle of the Gentiles, and magnify my ministry. If by any means I provoke to jealousy those who are in my flesh, and save some of them. You know, we, when we go to Israel, they have our tour guides there. And they're, they're first time ever in 31 tours that we've had a, a messianic tour guide. They don't, there's not too many of them that in existence. They're all... Jews, they don't believe in Jesus, your Christian groups, you go there, you want to tell them about Jesus the whole time, you think they're going to get it, they, you think they're listening, and, and they don't, they think, oh, maybe next year, and you go back next year, and it's like, same thing, same place, but we had a messianic guide, but they say that in Israel, that whenever there's a war, or there's a bombing, or there's something that's scary that's going on, they say the Jewish groups are always the first ones to cancel. And then the, the denominational churches, they're, they're the next groups to cancel the tours. And then, and then there's the Bible-believing Christian churches. And they said, then there's Calvary Chapel. They never cancel. And they said, we, we, we kind of figure out why, why you guys don't cancel. is because you guys have faith. And, and when they see us, they, they give us a testimony that you guys are a people of faith. And we can see that. And, and it does provoke them to jealousy. They see God's blessing. And they see God's hand. And, and, and what, what Paul says here, they, they, they get it and they, they see it. And it says in verse 14, if by, or let's go to verse 16. For if, by, if the first fruits is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. 
And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them because partakers of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Somebody say wild branch. That's you guys, wild things. You guys are the wild things that it talks about here. And so look at verse 17 again. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, with them because become partakers of the root of the fatness of the olive tree. Verse 18, listen, do not boast. Somebody say, do not boast. Against the branches. But if you do, say if you do, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So that that's kind of the message today, you guys, of, of Romans 11. And for this thing that I brought up here to display for you guys and being grafted in is that that's the idea. They're, they're God's chosen people and God in his mercy and in his grace, he's, he's grafted us in. We're, we're this wild olive, this, this Gentile church. You know, the Bible says that whether we're Scythian or slave, Gentile or Jew, that we're one in Christ. And so under the banner of Christ, we, we, we're all one. The body of Christ is all one together. And we lose this, this, these tags, these hashtags of where we are and who we are under Christ in one body. We are now the body of Christ. But we have been grafted in. And yes, the Jews missed it and, 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 and they made a mistake. But I want to tell you something, God's not done with them. And so God says to you and me today in Romans chapter 11, yes, be excited that you're grafted in. Be blessed that you're grafted in. And don't, don't boast about the fact that you positionally, maybe you have a better position than, than where the Jews who don't receive Jesus are today. Yes, you do. You're a bride of Christ. You're going to be raptured. But if you do boast, just understand that, that you're grafted into them and not vice versa. They're the base. They're the root. And that we're grafted into, into them as, as the wild olive branch. Amen? All right, let's stand. Hey, guys, we have um, National Back to Church Day coming up. And I can't believe they have a National Back to Church Day, but they do. And so I want to I challenge you guys. I want to encourage you guys over the next couple of weeks. Um, September 18th is the official day. But, but in September, I want to challenge you guys to start praying this week, start praying in the next couple of weeks to invite somebody and bring, with, bring somebody with you to church. And then... Um, for National Back to Church Day, we're going to start a new series in First John, and I'm really going to focus on 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 uh, just preaching the gospel and sharing the love of Jesus over September and October. It'd be good. It'll be a good series um, to bring new people to, and so uh, you bring them, and we'll love them and give them Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to close with a worship song, and as we do, we're, we'll be up front to pray for you. If anybody needs individual prayer, um, you can come up and receive prayer. So let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you that we've been grafted in, Lord Jesus. We thank you for um, Israel today. And, and Lord, we pray for the Jews. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem because the Bible tells us to. Lord, we stand with Israel because, again, God, that you've called us to stand with your people. And Lord, that when you return, Jesus, the Bible says you're going to put one foot on the Mount of Olives and the other across the Kidron Valley. And Lord, the reality is that, Jesus, when you come back, you're coming to Jerusalem. And so, Lord, we, we, we thank you for that city. It says, the Bible says it's the city of the great king. And so, Jesus, we, we, we thank you that, that you love us, that you care for us. I pray if there's anybody here, Lord, who's, 
never been grafted in and doesn't know Jesus, that they would have the opportunity today to receive Jesus and get their hearts and their lives right with you. We pray, Lord, for our church and for the next couple of weeks coming up and uh, church growth time. And, Father, that we could, we could love on the people that you bring. We thank you for those, Lord, that are here this morning. And if anybody needs individual prayer, we just pray, Father, for them. We pray, Lord, that you would, you would embolden them and work in their hearts. And, and, Lord, bring them to receive from you. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.